0: We continue on in 1 John chapter 3 this morning, looking at the relationship between sin and Christianity, basically, which is what John is teaching on in this passage. So to give you a little bit of an idea of what Americans think about sin, I want to share with you a poll that was done, it's a little bit dated now, it was done in 2016 by Lifeway Research, and when asked the question... Which of the following best describes you? Here are the percentages that we're giving in relationship to the question about sin. 34% of people said, I am a sinner and I work on being less of one. 28% 28 said, I am a sinner and I depend on Jesus Christ to overcome sin. 10% of people said sin does not exist. 8% 8% said, I'm not a sinner. 5% said, I'm a sinner and I'm fine with that. I appreciate the honesty. And then 15% just refused to answer the question. Now, this was a 1,000 surveys and those were the responses given to them. Now, this is a relatively small sample size, but you can see just in that little survey that we have, at least within our own country, a full spectrum of belief about sin. Those who know they sin and are completely dependent on Jesus all the way to those that don't think it exists or they don't care that they even do sin or understand why it would matter. So this morning as we work our way through this text, we're going to notice four key elements of this passage that John outlines for us. Number one, the relationship between Jesus and sin. Number two, the relationship between Christians and sin. Number three, the relationship between Satan and sin. And then number four, the relationship between regeneration and sin. So, between Jesus and sin, between Christians and sin, between Satan and sin, and then between regeneration and sin. Number one, the relationship between Jesus and sin. Now, while you might think this point is blatantly obvious, in verse 5, it says, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. To us, that makes perfect sense. To Christians in the room, we understand that this is why Jesus came. But for many people that are not in Christ, that is not assumed by lots of people. Yes, we know that Jesus came and performed miracles, told great parables, enraged the religious community of the day, raised up a loyal band of followers, but the story of the Bible, primarily from Genesis to Revelation, is of Jesus coming to take away the sins of his people. That is primarily why Jesus came. So to lessen the significance of Jesus taking away sin is to make him no different than many of the other religious figures that people worship today. Miracles are not unique to Jesus. Even in our own Bible, when you go back to the story of Moses, even Pharaoh's magicians perform some of the same miraculous things that we see Moses doing in the book of Exodus. Other miracle workers existed even during the time of Jesus. So it can't just be that we worship Jesus because he does miracles. No, we worship him because he took away the sins of our hearts. And as I always say, we don't need Jesus to make us good husbands, good wives. Good mothers, brothers, sisters, cousins, employees, Americans, etc., etc. We can be all of those things without following after Jesus. But none of those things will save us from our sin. And that's why Jesus is so important. If Jesus is the means to us for something other than God himself then we have either not read our Bibles, never opened our Bibles, or sat under really bad teaching. Because the primary reason we need Jesus is to save us from our sins. Human beings cannot be reconciled to a holy God any other way except through the atoning death of Christ on the cross. Now, I use this phrase all the time in my sermons, the finished work of Christ on the cross... And I never stop to define what I mean by that. So let me explain it to you for a moment. When God sent His Son to live among us in the flesh, He fulfilled this purpose that God sent Him for perfectly. He obeyed perfectly. He maintained His holiness perfectly. And He endured His suffering perfectly. Thus, when Jesus cries out on the cross, it is finished he means not simply that his life accomplished all that the Father intended it for it to accomplish, but that the entire plan of salvation is now complete. John Stott, in his excellent book, The Cross of Christ, points out four images that are really helpful for us to understand what takes place in salvation. The first one, he says, is that Jesus propitiates we've talked about this before that is the idea of jesus turning away god's wrath away from us onto himself so jesus propitiates number two jesus redeems meaning that he buys he purchases or he ransoms us back to himself since we have been enslaved to our own sin. Number three, God justifies us. This means he declares us legally not guilty. The sinner has been made right with God. We've been forgiven and we've been reinstated to a proper relationship with God. And then number four, where is it? Maybe it was, oh, here we go. He reconciles us to himself. This is the idea that because of our sin, we're separated God reconciles us to himself through the atoning death of his son. John Stott says this in the book. When God justifies sinners, he's not declaring bad people to be good or saying that they are not sinners at all. He is pronouncing them legally righteous. Free from any liability to the broken law because he himself and his son has borne the penalty of their law breaking. God is the author and Christ is the agent in reconciliation. So through reconciliation we are given access to God and adopted into God's family. So apart from the finished work of Christ on the cross... Human beings will receive the wrath of God for their sin. Meaning they will not, Jesus will not propitiate. Number two, they will remain enslaved to their sin. That means they will not be redeemed. Number three, they will be declared not guilty and therefore not justified. And then number four, they will not be reconciled to God. So the finished death of Christ... ...on the cross brings redemption, reconciliation, justification... ...and God's wrath being turned away from us because of our sin and poured out on Christ. So when Jesus appeared, lived amongst the flesh, and then died to take away sins... ...he accomplished it through a humiliating, gruesome, and painful death on the cross. So believers in the room, when you are discouraged or in despair, cling to the words of Jesus, it is finished. You have been redeemed, you have been reconciled, you have been justified, and God's wrath has been turned away from you because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. Non-Christians, as we say every week, repent of your sins and believe in faith so that you can have redemption, reconciliation, justification and avoid the wrath of god with christ eternal blessings await without christ eternal damnation awaits that's the beauty of the gospel that is the relationship between jesus and sins but number two in this passage we also see the relationship between christians and sin look at verse four and six Because a lot is happening in this passage that we need to clarify and make sure we understand. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now, if you were to just take these verses and isolate it from the rest of the book of John, which is not what we're going to do, you might wrongly interpret these verses to mean that once in Christ, sinners will no longer sin. But we know that's not true. In fact, that's one of the reasons John is writing this letter. Context is always king. Go back to chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 8, this is what John says. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Chapter 1, verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So John is not claiming here in chapter 3 that once someone is in Christ, they no longer sin. This is what the false teachers that John is refuting were claiming, that they were without sin. So sin must have a more nuanced meaning in this passage. If we're to understand what he's talking about in chapter 3. So in verse 4 of chapter 3, you see the term lawlessness. John says sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness, most likely, in this passage is describing a sin that is so weighty that the one who commits it would basically not be a follower of christ and in fact it's talking about someone who would be in active rebellion against god and in first john who would those people be the false teachers Those that were claiming that they no longer sinned once they were in Christ. Those that were claiming that Jesus was not God in the flesh. One commentator basically said, while all Christians commit sinful acts, they can be forgiven through repentance. We know that. 100% of the time, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's chapter 1, verse 9. But sin can reach the level of lawlessness described here where the sin is so rebellious that it actually reflects an inner nature in active rebellion against God. So Christians, even though these verses are describing those not in Christ, let us not forget that we do have a responsibility to take our sin seriously why is it so important to take our sin seriously john stott actually mentions it he says the first step towards holy living is to recognize the true nature and wickedness of sin let me say it again the first step towards holy living is to recognize the true nature and wickedness of sin So instead of not talking about sin, instead of downplaying our sin, what we actually need to be doing is examining our hearts regularly for the purpose of confessing our sin so that we can walk in holiness before God. And we as Christians can be highly skilled at justifying our sin. A bad temper on the ball field by a coach or a player is easily reframed as competitiveness. Being a jerk to employees that work under you is justified by saying, well, I'm the boss. Being greedy or stingy with our time is often branded as time management. Sex outside of a monogamous covenant heterosexual relationship is often justified by saying everyone else is doing it. Gluttony Hardly even registers as a sin in many of our lists. We never think about the fact that the Bible says overeating, overindulging is a sin. Pornography is used regularly both amongst lost people and Christians. And the excuse is often said, well, this is better than cheating on my spouse or getting my girlfriend pregnant. Going 85 miles an hour in a 70-mile-an-hour zone is, well, I have to keep up with the flow of traffic, which is what my dad taught me. (laughs) And that's not a good thing, by the way. The movies, the TV shows, the music we listen to is justified by saying, well, I just need to stay relevant with what's happening in the world. I I don't want lost people to think that I'm not in touch with what's happening in the popular culture. But we either believe the gospel is enough to change hearts, or we believe that being culturally relevant is enough to change hearts. Which one actually changes hearts? Many Christians, myself included, we all feel the pull to be culturally relevant. And when we feel that urge to want to identify with the ways of the world, we should kill it. Because being culturally relevant could cause us to sin. And the gospel is what changes hearts after all. Not whether or not I know what's happening on Instagram or Facebook or TikTok. And obviously I'm way out of touch with all of those forms of communication. But the gospel is what changes hearts. Not being culturally relevant. John tells the community that he's writing to in verse 7. Let no one deceive you. These false teachers who were claiming to follow God with their mouth while their actions were actually reflecting the opposite. And John wants to remind the true Christians that he's writing to that what you say and how you live should match up. And we're going to talk about that more next week. And the test of this, he says, is whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. So remember this, the proof of our righteousness is in the fruit of our righteousness. The proof of our righteousness is in the fruit of our righteousness and when the imputed righteousness of Christ dwells in a believer there will be fruit. So that's the relationship between Christians and sin. We also see in this passage a relationship between Satan and sin. Look at verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Remember the practice of sinning in this passage is related to the lawlessness that we mentioned earlier. But in John's gospel, look at how Satan is associated with sin. John 8:44 Jesus is talking to the Jews. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Then he says later in John chapter 13, verses 2 and 27, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And then verse 27, then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. John regularly shows us the relationship between sin and Satan's role in that sin. If you go back to Genesis... And you find the story of the serpent deceiving Adam and Eve to eat of the fruit which God commanded them not to. And from that initial sin in Genesis 3, the rest of Genesis 4-11 through is a downward spiral of Satan's initial deception of Adam and Eve. Fortunately, we know that there's hope. We know that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil... As John says in this passage. John does not inform us how this happened, but we know the answer. It is through Jesus' atoning death on the cross. Jesus defeats death in his resurrection. And he conquers sin through dying the death that we deserved. So even though Satan still roams around like a roaring lion seeking those to devour... We know that's true, but we know that the war has already been won. Jesus accomplished and defeated Satan in his death and resurrection. So while the the battles continue day in and day out for us, the war has already been won by Jesus. The problem of human sin has been dealt with. Once and for all, which is why Paul can tell us in Romans 8:1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. That is the good news for all that are in Christ. Satan, brothers and sisters, does not win because Jesus accomplished it on the cross. So, whatever sin you struggle with, you battle with, which we all have them, we all have those sins that wage war against our soul. If you are in Christ, know that Jesus has already defeated Satan. Romans 8 also tells us that we should walk according to the Spirit rather than according to the flesh. That is how we gain victory over Satan. So there is a relationship between Satan and sin, but we must remember that Christ has defeated Satan through his death on the cross. And then number four, the relationship between regeneration and sin. We've been coming back to this topic of regeneration throughout our study of 1 John. So let me define it for you again really quickly. Regeneration is the work of the Holy Spirit to unite the elect sinner to Christ by breathing new life into that dead and depraved sinner so as to raise him from spiritual death to spiritual life, removing his heart of stone and giving him a heart of flesh so that he is washed, born from above, and now able to repent and trust in Christ as a new creation. If we understand in the context of this passage what John means when he's talking about lawlessness or sin, that it is active rebellion against God That would prove that this individual is not in Christ. Then, verse 9 is saying that once regeneration within a person has happened, they will not leave the faith. Now, this is an idea that is historically Baptist. This is the idea that once you are in Christ, or when you have been saved, you will, in fact, persevere to the end. There are some people that don't believe in this idea. They believe that their salvation can never be secure. We do not believe that. We believe that once those have been regenerated and they have repented of their sin and they have put their faith in Christ, they will in fact endure to the end. So, in a nutshell, if you believe in regeneration, which you certainly should, then. To claim that it's possible to sin, which in the context of 1 John would be lawlessness that we've been talking about. You would actually be saying that you, you don't believe in regeneration. Look at what John says. God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. What do we mean by sinning here? We mean lawlessness. We've already said that sinners will struggle with sin. John is saying once God's seed abides in you, you cannot keep on sinning. In other words, you cannot practice lawlessness. You cannot be in active rebellion against God. Do you understand the magnitude of what John is saying here? How often do we either hear the story or no people in our own lives who they're clearly living a lifestyle that is an active rebellion against God but who claim to be Christians see this is where in our own denomination Baptists, especially within the last 100 to 150 years have done a poor job of teaching because in many ways we have pushed and pushed and pushed For people to follow Christ, and they respond, and yet when they respond, they actually have not repented of their sins or put their faith in Christ. Instead, they have responded to some sort of altar call, oftentimes manipulated, where people come down the aisle, they fill out a card, they get baptized, but they don't know the first thing about regeneration. They don't actually or have never felt conviction of their sin. So what have those people done? They have done what we would call a religious ritual. They have performed a ritual to make them think that they are right with God, but God has actually not softened their heart and they have not responded in faith and repentance. They have simply responded to the call perhaps that some preacher put out there. Because what we know about regeneration is that regeneration cannot fail when god changes your heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh you will in fact persevere until the end john spells it out in this passage he says he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of god again This is talking about lawlessness, this active rebellion against God. John is not saying that Christians will not have sin. He's saying lawlessness will not describe a Christian. He's saying the description that Paul gives us in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3... And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the deeds of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. That Ephesians 2, 1-3 is what we should associate with John talking about sin in this passage. He's talking about someone who is in active rebellion against God. Someone who still has that heart of stone. Because the act of regeneration has not happened to change that heart of stone to a heart of flesh. So, why does all of this matter? It is not helpful, brothers and sisters. When we talk to people that we know who claim to follow Jesus... Because they remember some religious experience that they had. That is not to say that walking an aisle makes you not saved. I walked an aisle. I signed a card. I've been baptized. Almost all of you in this room would have done the same thing. So we are not refuting any of those steps. But the reality is there are many people in Dothan, in the Deep South especially, that have responded to some sort of religious ritual. And they are banking on that religious ritual to put them in right standing before God. So let's not lead people to think that simply because they have done that, that they are regenerate when they want nothing to do with Christ's church, they want nothing to do with Christ, they don't desire at all to live a life of holiness. And if you've tried to warn someone who this would describe, and their response is, well, I know I'm saved because when I was seven, I was baptized we need to rebuke that individual we need to tell them you are banking your eternal security on some religious ritual but there is no evidence of fruit in your life whatsoever what they actually did more than likely was respond to some sort of religious call to come and sign a card many of them probably have not been born again and as john concludes this passage He tells the true Christians, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So the children of God and the children of the devil ultimately will be identified by their fruit. The false teachers in this letter were claiming to love God, but they were not practicing righteousness. And John is saying to the true Christians that he's writing to, to claim to love God and not practice righteousness is a sign that you're not in Christ. This does not mean that you have to live a perfect life. This does not mean that you will not struggle with sin. This is describing lawlessness. Those who are in active rebellion... Against God. People that claim to love God but that do not practice righteousness, John says, are children of the devil. But it's equally true that those who claim to love God but do not love their brothers and sisters are also of the devil. Jesus sums this up. In his teaching, in Mark chapter 12, verse 30 and 31, he says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So John makes it very clear in this passage. What saves a person is the act of the Holy Spirit changing a person's heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. And then they respond in repentance and faith. What does not save a person is a baptism. What does not save a person is just simply walking down the aisle and signing a card even though we do that in our church. None of those things save a person. What saves a person is a heart that responds in repentance and faith to the finished work of Christ on the cross. Anything else simply confuses and deceives. So, non-Christians, if you want to be saved, repent of your sins And believe in Christ. And you don't have to walk down this aisle in order for that to happen. You can simply respond to the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, yes, we want you to tell us so that you can be baptized and be obedient to Christ's command. But simply walking down this middle aisle converts no one. So non-Christians, respond in repentance and faith. Christians, we are also challenged in this passage to be consistent in our love both for brothers and sisters in Christ but also in our pursuit of righteousness and holiness. It is not that righteousness and holiness saves us. It is evidence that we have been saved. It is our pursuit of holiness and righteousness that the Holy Spirit confirms within us that we have in fact been sealed. We must take our sin seriously because our proof of authentic Christian faith is the fruit that God produces in us as he abides in us, which we just sang about earlier this morning. John wants his followers in this passage to understand both to the true Christians and the false teachers. False teachers, I don't care what you say about how much you claim to love God. None of your actions prove or give evidence that you have, in fact, been saved. And Christians, understand that the way you live and what you say you believe need to match up. Not that we will accomplish it perfectly in this life. We have been talking about throughout this epistle the process of sanctification and how we all grow in our holiness at different rates. But we should be concerned about our own spiritual growth. And we should not just sit back and say, Well, I'm saved, and so I'm just going to coast into heaven. No. God wants you to practice and pursue the spiritual disciplines and become more holy and conform more to His image as you grow in Christ. So John gives a a heavy message in this passage today. For us all, sinner, non-Christian... Christian, sinner, reflect on your own heart. Let's pray together. Father, you have spoken through your word. It is not anything that I say that converts anyone in this room. It is your Holy Spirit working in the hearts of those who realize that they're sinners and desire to respond in repentance and faith. And for all that are in Christ, we pray that you would show us our sin so that we might confess it before you as we pursue holiness and righteousness. We ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.